the MDT Podcast. Welcome to the MDT Podcast. I am Ian Wilkinson and I'm a geriatrician down in Surrey. I'm Joe Preston. I'm a geriatrician in South London. And I'm Sophie. I'm the MDT Fellow. And this is an extra special uh, little additional uh, episode following on from the discussion we've just had in episode 10.4 on osteoarthritis. So if you've not listened to that, I would recommend going back and listening to that one to give you a bit of a background for this discussion that we're going to have with uh, Dr. Helen Linklater, who is here to talk about a few additional other bits. So I'm Helen Linklater, consultant rheumatologist at East Surrey Hospital. And I see a lot of people with osteoarthritis, as well as inflammatory arthritis, which is what rheumatologists primarily do. But um, there's always been a lot of interest, Ian, of course, in how to treat osteoarthritis because there are increasingly lots of effective treatments for inflammatory arthritis. Everybody has higher expectations, as they should do, about returning to normal function. The progress of treatments to disease modify, if you like. So if we're treating inflammatory arthritis, we're looking at stopping the process causes damage and with osteoarthritis if you take the medical focus there is joint damage that is at least partly mediated by inflammation but the treatments that we use for inflammatory arthritis don't seem to be as effective although there has been some overlap sometimes not entirely consciously because people with inflammatory arthritis and osteoarthritis have seen some benefit from some of the treatments that we use. But when you actually target them in clinical trials, there aren't convincing benefits demonstrated. So a lot of the focus has been more on the treatment of pain. There's quite a high benchmark. uh, And one interesting comment that came out from one of our conferences was that actually getting authorization to conduct trials in pain for osteoarthritis is quite tricky because in order for for example US drug licensing bodies to license treatments for osteoarthritis they often require that any drugs used can show a difference in mortality which is really quite a high benchmark and so unfortunately has led to a lack of investment in this area but In the recent American College of Rheumatology conference, there's been big noise about a drug called tenuzumab, which is an anti-nerve growth factor antagonist. And this seems to be quite promising, showing that symptomatic osteoarthritis actually correlates with NGF nerve growth factor expression. And it does seem to be that this is likely to be a big topic. There have been quite a lot of trials of neuropathic pain agents in osteoarthritis, and I think there's no real clear results of benefit, but we all use them pragmatically because I think in clinical practice, you want to help people control their pain and feel in control um, and return to normal function. So in addition to analgesics and disease-modifying drugs, Is there anything further about exercise and uh, sort of other non-pharmacological treatments mentioned recently? Well, there are strong recommendations for aerobic, aquatic, neuromuscular strengthening exercises and conditional recommendations for balancing training, yoga, CBT, that's cognitive behavioural therapy 
acupuncture and knee bracing. So I think they're going really quite broadly. But I think one of the things I've seen as a rheumatologist, so a non-exercise specialist, is that increasingly the terms around exercise are becoming more closely defined, which I, I think is a good thing. Because again, going back to the point we made in the podcast about using the same language, a lot of exercise terms are used by everybody in every field now. And we need to be more precise about what exercise means. I think that's something that we've we've seen in some of the other work we've talked about in that we need to define what, what the intervention exactly is, but also define the dose that we're talking about. So so the frequency and the intensity. And I think that's that's something that's sometimes made it difficult to compare outcomes of different studies. You end up comparing apples with pears, don't you, sometimes? You do. You do. And um, I think when people have quite understandably real keenness to get back into the activities that they love and they're very knowledgeable about, if you can use the language of that activity, that sport, it brings confidence that they can return to that. Something I saw when I was looking into this that talked about how um, people stick to physical activity and exercise much more if it's um, part of their sort of normal routine or, or, or part of something else rather than a prescribed series of exercises, um, which I suppose makes sense, doesn't it? But um, that adherence I think was much better. So I, I think, think it does. Um, so ledger activities are adhered to better than sort of individualised specific exercises. And that's going to link into the episode that we've got coming up on ageing athletes with Professor Tully from Scotland. We're going to be talking about exactly that. And so the other thing we wanted to discuss in this uh, kind of offshoot was about supplements and nutraceuticals, which must be a question you get asked all the time in, in clinic, Helen. Yes, it is. Because people don't want to take medicine, do they? They want to get themselves better with diet and hopefully also with exercise. And nutraceuticals are seen as wellness. They're seen as an extra bonus on the diet, really. And there was a paper in Rheumatology published in 2018, which I'm sure Sophie will put in the show notes, which is a meta-analysis of eight systematic reviews and nine randomised controlled trials. So it sounds quite impressive, but unfortunately, the evidence on these nutraceuticals is all quite weak. And so when you look at the evidence, there may be some positive effect behind some of them, which include a number of extracts. But one of them is curcumin, which is more well known as turmeric, uh, which comes from the Ayurvedic tradition. So there's every reason to suspect that there, there is some anti-inflammatory activity and therapeutic benefit. But it's just quite hard to say what the evidence for that actually is. And there is potential interaction with some anticoagulants. So I think it is always worth having an open discussion about these nutraceuticals. Obviously, the one that's most widely known is glucosamine and chondroitin. And NICE have now reflected some of the published evidence by saying that no longer is considered effective. There is some evidence that galactolipid extract, which is from rose hips, is quite effective. And I have actually been quoting that to patients, um, although unfortunately it is quite expensive. It works out about £30 a month. And yeah, that's included in the paper. So I think you have to acknowledge that people will want to do something for themselves. I think that's a very good thing. But that by acknowledging it, hopefully you put that in context and then you can discuss other things that you also think might be beneficial and get them to 
hopefully be open to other interventions as well, like exercise. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So hopefully that's been a nice sort of helpful summary of, of where some of the treatment options might be going, consolidating down on some things you might have heard about um, and give you a bit more backup to answer some of those questions that you might get in clinic um, about things that can happen. It'd be beneficial. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't get to say this very often, but the MDT will reconvene in two weeks. The MDT Podcast. 